0: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 308. Today's episode is all about the art of selling without selling, the unsold mindset for authentic sales and relationships.
1: The biggest compliment that we get from at least a handful of students every semester is, you know, I thought I was signing up for a sales class, but it's really a life class because we talk about the ways to think about things as opposed to like down the line selling when people hear that word and get cringy. And just know that we're not necessarily talking about that, we're talking about the selling that everybody does every single day.
2: Like we thought we could change the way that the world viewed selling if we could change the way that people viewed themselves. It's not a yucky word. You can't change the world or anybody's world if you don't know how to move people. And normally, people think it's so yucky that when they get into a selling situation, they act like someone they're not. But the greatest sellers are like the opposite of perfect. They're imperfect. They intentionally are like rushing to show you like as quickly as possible how much they are like you by just showing you how imperfect they are immediately. So it's just counter to what all of us have been trying to do. your frequency with Mind Love.
0: Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Have you ever stopped to consider what it truly means to sell? Is it just about pushing a product or service or could it be something more profound, more transformative? I remember my first job in sales at an online school. I was young and eager and armed with this script that promised a brighter future through education. (laughs) But as I dialed number after number, I just felt this growing discomfort. I was selling degrees, but was that all I was doing? Was I just a cog in a machine churning out transactions? Well, one day it hit me. I wasn't just selling a degree. I was actually offering a path to transformation. Every call was this opportunity to change someone's life or to open a door to new possibilities. And when I started to see it that way, everything changed because I wasn't just a salesperson anymore. I was a guide leading people towards their dreams. Well, that realization actually changed a lot in my life. This same mindset carried over into my work as a coach. If I believed I was just trying to get someone to pay me, I wouldn't believe in my skills very much. But when I believe in my process and the tools that I'm sharing, I'm not just selling this coaching package, I'm actually sharing an opportunity to receive the gifts that took me decades to learn myself. This belief ends up attracting people to me, not just because I'm trying to sell them something, but because I'm actually offering them a chance to transform their lives. But here's the thing, most people don't see it this way. They see it as this necessary evil. Kind of like some grueling task just to be endured and trudged through. So they're stuck in the status quo, looking at sales like some zero-sum game where one person wins and the other one loses. But what if we could change that mindset? What if we could redefine what it means to sell? And let's be clear, sales is not just for so-called salespeople. It's a skill needed in every role in life. Whether you're a teacher inspiring students, a parent encouraging your child, a friend offering advice, you're selling something. You're selling ideas, beliefs, and possibilities. And the better you are at it, the more impact you can make. So that's exactly what we're going to explore in this episode. We're going to dive into the concept of the unsold mindset with Garrett Brown and Colin Coggins. They're here to challenge our preconceived notions about sales and show us how it can be a force for good and a tool for transformation. Knowing this information can revolutionize not just your approach to sales, but your entire life because it can turn those dreaded sales calls into meaningful conversations and transactions into transformations, and even the other way around. It can turn conversations into an opportunity to open other people up. It can even turn everyday moments into a little chance to change the world. So today, we are redefining what it means to sell. Our guests, Colin Coggins and Garrett Brown, have been on a quest picking the brains of the best from CEOs to athletes and artists, you name it. And they all had a unique take on selling, breaking the mold of what we think a salesperson should be. They were all unsold on the traditional sales scripts and unsold on fitting into a box. So three key things we will learn are the secret sauce behind the mindset of great sellers and the two pivotal questions that kickstart their journey, the concept of the unsold and the lessons that we can learn from them, and how intentional ignorance can be a surprising game changer in your sales strategy. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Colin Coggins and Garrett Brown to the show.
2: Hey. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So tell me about your journey to understanding the mindsets of great sellers.
2: Hmm. It's a uh, leading off of some fire, huh? Some oh, yeah. <laughs> we, Garrett and I, were at Bidium, which was a software security identity access management company. Um, and that company ultimately was acquired by Google. And at our time there together, what I think was very obvious was the new entrance into the workforce, regardless of what their roles were, engineers or salespeople, they weren't being taught how to move people. So like they they literally couldn't chase their dreams, or figuratively they couldn't chase their dreams because they couldn't get promoted, because they couldn't ask for things, because the word sales was such a yucky word until you, you know, put in front of them anyone that they've ever admired or revered and you you tell them like they just sold an idea that changed the world. And all of a sudden they could make that mindset shift. And so you know, ultimately, when that company got acquired by Google, um, academia was really interested in how we were approaching sales because it was different than the tech culture that preceded us. And so we just we did a lot of guest lecturing. We ended up um at USC, fell in love. I fell in love for the first time. Garrett's fallen in love four generations deep. Started uh, started teaching um, sales mindset for entrepreneurs. And it was the only sales mindset class in all of higher education. And then we were fortunate enough to have Harper Collins give us a book deal based on this idea uh, that the curriculum had not ever been you know, transformed into a book before. And the idea behind the curriculum, behind the book and everything that we do is that the greatest salespeople on the planet are the exact opposite of who people think they are. Like they're not gregarious. They're not self-confident. They're not all of these things. They they have some very unique attributes and what ties them all together is that they all think very similarly. So it's not necessarily that they do the same things, but how they approach the world, how they approach life, how they approach se- selling was really eye-opening for us and it was the antithesis of what people of who people thought they were.
1: The only thing I'll add to that is when Colin talks about the fact that we had a different approach to our team at that company that got acquired by Google. It was always a mindset first approach. Like Colin and I love sales and we love selling, but you can go a whole bunch of different places to learn how to quote unquote sell, whether you're selling an idea, whether you're selling yourself or whether you're selling a product, you can go to a lot of places. But where we really geek out and where we fell in love with each other as partners is like, how do we, how do you think about selling? If if everybody has access to all of the same trainings and all of the same podcasts and all of the same books, why is it that? Anywhere we go, in any room, whether it's a room of salespeople, a room of leaders, a room of teachers, a room of real estate agents, I mean, we we talk to everybody. Why is it that only 20% of them are thriving and the other 80% are figuring it out? And for us, that was mindset. So when we created this class, you know, the biggest compliment that we get from at least a handful of students every semester is, you know, I thought I was signing up for a sales class, but it's really a life class because we talk about the ways to think about things as opposed to like down the line selling when people hear that word and get cringy just know that we're not necessarily talking about that we're talking about the selling that everybody does every single day
2: i think that's the point too is how cringy people get and and that how garrett always has to make that caveat yeah right like that was the point like we thought we could change the way that the world viewed selling if we could change the way that people viewed themselves It's not a yucky word. You can't change the world or anybody's world if you don't know how to move people. And normally, people think it's so yucky that when they get into a selling situation, they act like someone they're not. Either who they think the, you know, who they think the best version of this person is supposed to look like. But the greatest sellers are like the opposite of perfect. They're imperfect. They like intentionally are not the smartest people in the room. They intentionally are like rushing to show you, like as quickly as possible, how much they are like you by just showing you how imperfect they are immediately. So it's just counter to what all of us have been trying to do for so long.
0: It's so funny because when I think of salesperson. The first image that comes to my mind is like a 1930s door-to-door vacuum salesman, and I've never even experienced this in my life yet. That is still like the pervasive yeah. <laughs> image that I have.
1: It's not your fault. Like it's in their deep because of of society and culture and every movie that you've seen and and you know uh, every book that you've read about a salesperson. That's. That's the stereotype. You know, Colin and I are lucky. We get to talk to thousands of people every year. You know, we, we, we go on stages and we speak. We've got our class. We've got the people we interact with in our day jobs. And, and we always ask them, what do you think of when you hear the word salesperson? And your your thinking is not unique in that everybody says icky, yucky, manipulative, slimy, used car salesperson. And so, you know, our journey to, to this book and to, to the conversations that we get to have about this subject that we're so passionate about really started with that question because we would ask people that and we would get those responses. And it didn't matter who we were talking to. But then we would ask them a second question at the end of a conversation, which is, who is the greatest salesperson that you know? Or when, when we say great salesperson, who comes to mind? And those answers are totally different. Like the, the the top two answers are Steve Jobs and Martin Luther King. And we also get family members, mothers and siblings and parents and and religious figures. And so we get to then point out, like, we asked you what you think of when you hear the word salesperson. And you said icky, slimy, and manipulative. And then we said, who is a great salesperson that you think of? And you said your daughter. And there's this crazy incongruence. And so that's where Colin and I live. And that's where we we just wanted to understand that and show people that it is okay to sell, again, ideas, yourself, products, um, and you can do it authentically without being someone you're not.
0: Yeah, I think you hit a great point when you said that we often kind of put salespeople into a box, but if we want to learn how to move people, which is so many of our goals, you have to know how to sell. And so it's just reframing that idea of what selling is. I mean, even what I do, i am my whole purpose is to try to move people towards living more intentionally, finding their happiness. That's a form of sales. I have to sell chicken strips to my toddler at night, you know, like in, in so many moments of my persuading yeah. something. Just to create a happy life around us. And so I, I love that you hit that reframing because I know a lot of people are like, mind love sales episode, but I know the importance of sales. I've studied it. And so I I just think it's really important for all of the people that always reach out to me saying, I want to find my purpose, I want to help people, I want to change the world. You have to learn how to sell. And so the The title of your book is called The Unsold Mindset. And so I'm curious, who are the unsold?
2: Yeah. Well, the idea came from a pattern that we were seeing during the book writing process. Because during the book writing process, we thought we were going to find out why great salespeople were great. So we thought this was a book about, you know, salespeople. And when we went to all of these salespeople and we were like, hey, like, why are you number one? Why are you so good? And then the second question that Garrett touched on earlier, and who's the best salesperson you know? No one gave us an answer that was a salesperson to that question. Every single number one salesperson that we asked, hey, well, who's the best salesperson you know? Or not everyone, like nine out of 10 were giving us lawyers, doctors, ice cream shop owners, Snoop Dogg, head of marketing for Adidas, right? Like, like these were so so the book took a really quick transition from wait. This is not a book about why the greatest salespeople are great. This is a book about why the greatest salespeople look exactly the opposite of who we think great salespeople are. And then we started having conversations with Snoop Dogg and Chef Roy Choi and General Stanley McChrystal and like, you know, Jason Oppenheim, all these people that had all of this stuff in common. And the main themes were were that they were unsold on what selling meant. Right. They were unsold on the definition of what selling meant to society. They were unsold on who society expected them to be. Like they were unsold that they had to conform, like they weren't rule breakers. They just didn't, they just weren't sold that the status quo was important. Mm-hmm. And because of that, like Chef Roy Choi is like the best salesperson in the room because he's an introvert. Because he's unsold on the idea that an introvert is a bad salesperson. He believes that being an introvert is the biggest selling superpower you have. Because no one ever listens to someone who talks all the time. Like right now, Garrett has like zoned me out for like the
1: last twenty-five minutes. It just happened. <laughs> 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 it's just, it's habit at this point. No, um, <laughs> Melissa, you you talked about you talked about reframing and. It's really interesting that you say that because all of these people, when Colin talks about them being unsold on what selling is supposed to be, they a, a lot of them reframed it as well. Like a lot of people who are excellent at what they do and and like titans in their field, we would ask them about selling and they be, I, I don't sell. I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher or I'm a problem solver or whatever the fill in the blank is that they reframed it as. But, you know, as hopefully most of the people listening will realize by the time this is over, they would also come to the realization by the end of the conversation as we're asking them about kind of the, the selling elements of whatever it was that they said they do. They go, oh, yeah, I, I guess that really is selling. So that reframe, you know, that's OK. And, and, and a lot of these people that we're talking about, these unsold, they do that.
0: But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. What advice do you often hear parroted in sales books that you hmm. just think is cringe? Because so many people are still picking up like The Little Red Book of Sales or like How yeah. to and Friends and Influence People. That's still <laughs> one of the top books out there. What what first of all some of go, those books are
2: racist? You gotta be really careful. <laughs> yes. Some of those books they don't intend to be racist, but they're just written so long ago that like some of that shit is just like um uh, how much time do you have I for wanted, us
1: to go over this stuff?
2: No, I, the, and, and, oh, no, I want to say this too, okay. Yeah, We don't I I haven't read the little red sales book, so I don't know if it falls into the cringy category. I just want to say that as well.
1: Garrett, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, there there are definitely things that are taught as sales canon that we don't necessarily think should be. And the best example of that is is mirroring. And you know, there that at some point we we don't know exactly when, probably in the 50s or 60s going back, people started to teach salespeople to mirror the person that they're selling to, meaning if they cross their legs, you should cross their legs. Or if they put their arm up, you should put your arm up because that is supposedly that a way to build connection psychologically. Now, what actually happens drives us crazy because people are still teaching this today. But what actually happened was people were studying great sellers and they noticed as they were studying them that the great sellers were crossing their legs when the other, when their customer was crossing their legs say as an example, But science since then has proven that that mirroring is actually just a natural outcome of a deep connection with another person. It's not something that we consciously do. So if if, if the three of us are having this amazing conversation, we might just accidentally find ourselves with our hands on our chin like Colin has right now, even though nobody can see this. And so it wasn't the mirroring that made these salespeople great. These people were great because they were building actual genuine connections with the people they were having a conversation with. And that mirroring is just a natural, unconscious human nature outcome of that connection. So it makes us nuts when we see things like that that are sort of misinterpreted and taken out of context and suddenly held as like, this is what salespeople do. It's what gives people the bad name because the other thing that science has proven is that we're really, really expert at picking up inauthenticity. And so if I'm sitting there having a conversation with somebody, and I'm thinking about where my arms and legs are placed, they're going to pick up on that. And instead of building the connection that that's supposedly going to build, it's having the opposite effect instead. Yeah, it's a tactic versus a mindset conversation,
2: right? I mean, that's what that that's ultimately what it is. Like, there's a book that will teach you how to act like a good salesperson. And there's a book that will teach you how to think like a good salesperson. It's more, it's more interesting to us why great salespeople are so engaged that they end up mirroring and like leaning in than the book that just tells you great salespeople lean in and are engaged. Because then you just got a whole bunch of like actors.
0: Yeah, it it actually reminds me of when I was first pregnant, I I read all of these studies, like what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? I ended up reading a book that was super interesting called Expecting Better. And it went through all of these studies and how they were misinterpreted. One, for example, is that caffeine can cause miscarriage. Turns out that people were linking the wrong thing because it's actually that Um, nausea is a good sign for a lot of people and when you're nauseous you don't crave caffeine so the correlation between people who or you don't crave coffee as much (laughs) when like coffee sounded horrible when I was nauseous and so they were just reading it from the wrong end of the spectrum. And and I think people do that a lot. They're like, oh, well, here's a study. It's clear. But you have to know how to yeah. read the study.
2: It's a vicious cycle. And it's what we see all the time. Someone enters the workforce. They want to be like someone who's getting good results. So they try to act like them. Except what that person thinks is funny and interesting and offensive, right? Like is completely different than, than you. So- you do it anyways, you don't get the results that you want. You at some point that turns into blame displacement where you're blaming the person. It's not it must not be your fault because you're doing the same thing as the hitter and the hitter gets great results. So it must be like the customer's fault. It must be the person that's not saying yes to you's fault. That turns into like a deeper uh, blame displacement, and then you've got like a bunch of just entitlement. And then you're looking like a salesperson that you never wanted to be. And that entitlement turns into looking like a knower and then knower ends. I mean, like it is such a bad cycle where at the end of the cycle, like not only do you have belief superiority and know-it-allism and no one would ever buy from you, but you're not even self-aware enough to realize that it all happened because you were trying to be someone you weren't. So you burn out, go somewhere else and do the same damn thing again.
1: And I love that we're talking about selling and parenting in this context, because those are two of probably many areas where everybody's got advice and everybody's got an opinion and a way to do things. And going back to your original question about who, who the unsold are and, and what the unsold mindset is, like the all of these great sellers and great leaders and, and great parents and the people that we spoke to. They they weren't bound by that. Like they they knew that what works for one person might not work for me, and they might try it and realize that it doesn't work and make it their own, as opposed to saying, "Oh, this is what the book says, or this is what that expert online says. That must be the way to do it." They know that there's not one path for every single person. like
2: bringing a baby did not work for our household. <laughs> <laughs> Tried
0: am reminded of this timeshare presentation that I went to because I used to love going to those to get free night stays places. <laughs> and so one of these was in Tahoe. And it was so funny because this woman was, she was pretty good at sales. We did end up buying and then returning it 90 hours later something or 72 hours later because I'm horrible I'm I'm so easily sold <laughs> by things and I mostly cuz I don't like disappointing people and saying no so in my mind I'm like I'm going to buy and I'm going to return this immediately like I already knew my
2: Very it's, it's not the best way,
0: way <laughs> to be I'm working on it but uh she when we were going over stuff something about my husband's birthday came up and she's like oh my god that's my birthday And later we were talking about it. We're like, how much you want to bet she says that to everyone? We didn't get to see her ID, you know, and she's just trying to, like, find this commonality because Mm. then we did another timeshare presentation and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's my middle name. And we're like, this is a tactic
2: (laughs) that
0: these people use. This is
2: close to home for us. Um, (laughs) Here's... Here's what I here's what I can say that there is a is a horrible representation sometimes in in places like Times Your offices of 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 salespeople. There's also like really good ones, too. Right. But, you know, you talked about something that is core to the book, which is when the first person in Tahoe, like she was pretty good at selling. Right, which means, which is like the kiss of death for any salesperson when someone says you're a good salesperson, because normally it's followed with but. Okay, it's like, so, so you saying like it's a pretty good salesperson, but I knew I was going to return it. You know what what that normally feels like is a lack of agency, meaning you didn't feel like you were part of the decision making process or a valuable contributor to like this process. This was like someone doing a good job selling you something and you're saying yes or no. And these great salespeople do the opposite. Like they're like, for instance, in a timeshare presentation, a lot of times they're asking questions to get answers to how to sell you, right? So like, what's important to you? When was the last time you did this? How much money do you spend, right? Take value, take value, take value. But there are like really great salespeople out there, including in Timeshare, who for some reason or another want to know things about you most people don't know or most people don't care to ask. So they'll ask you a question and typically you won't know the answer. So you will ideate for the first time in real time on what that answer is. And no matter what the answer is, you take ownership in the answer, right? Like You weren't sold that answer. like You bought that answer. That was you. Only really great salespeople are creating agency because you can't fake it with a leading question. Which means the only people that can do this well are the people that actually care enough to ask you a question that they want to know the answer to. Like that's the only way that you can that you get through it. So these so like that's the superpower. Is anybody has ever had a conversation with someone that they were enamored with, or if anyone's ever had a conversation and and they know what it feels like for someone to be enamored with you. Like you know how to catch a vibe. You can't manufacture that. So I think that's the agency conversation that someone in Timeshare in Tahoe probably was too good. And we will say no because you
1: are right often. That might be the most important lesson for, especially for your listeners because we're talking about a mindset shift here. It's not I'm not selling, I'm not convincing, I'm not persuading. I'm giving them control over their own circumstances, over their own decision. How do I do that? like how do I how do I care legitimately enough to do exactly that and, and asking those types of questions that Colin just mentioned is is definitely where we would recommend you start.
0: I think that's such a good point. I had a whole mindset shift when you said that because, like I said, pretty good salesperson. But if the goal is to move me and make me really deeply want something versus being pressured into an action – that I regret immediately afterwards. <laughs> like Those are two very different outcomes. So yes, yeah, she was good at pressuring me because she combated all of my no's and then I didn't have anything left. And so without just saying like, still no, and walking away, which is where <laughs> I need to build up my strength a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I guess I got nothing left. Okay, I'll buy, signing on the dotted line. And right. I'm like planning my return.
2: It's the but, corner. You put into a corner. It's like you said you were going to do this. You said you're going to spend <laughs> this much money. You said you blah blah blah. You're like, okay, you're right. I was like, so why are you saying no? Because you're right. <laughs> you yes. know that that's the next step for you. You'll say no right now. You return because they're right. But soon you'll just say no because they're right. And then one day you will be in Hawaii probably, and you'll meet a timeshare salesperson. Honestly, right, this is what happens. You'll meet a timeshare salesperson who has how many kids do you have? Two. Two kids that never spent money on vacations ever, that always worked, has a great story. It's all true. You see themselves, you see yourself in them. And then they have they have this narrative around how it forces them to do the most important thing that they would never force themselves to do, which has been $30,000 on something they could never touch or see again. You will like hit you, one of you will start to cry. They'll be like, <laughs> damn it. And then you'll buy it and you won't return it. And like every year your husband will complain about these HOAs. And then you'll be like, I know, but like, we still have to go on vacation this year. So it just depends. It's just like a car salesperson, right? They're the worst until you meet the best. Anyways, that was a tangent. Sorry.
0: No, I loved it. My yeah. my parents love their timeshare, yes! and they are the type of people who. And and I inherit that, so that's why it made no sense that I buy a timeshare. Like I'm already, yeah. in, they keep spending, they keep upgrading their timeshare, and I'm gonna get this and get stuck with the fees eventually. Oh,
2: shout so. out to all the timeshare <laughs> people out there. But the for me, ones, it's like my sure. favorite
0: part of the travel is finding a unique Airbnb. Like I don't want to stay at the same place. I will travel. I have had no problem traveling. So, Ooh, yeah. anyways, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's it goes. Good. It goes back to the authenticity that you talk about, and I know that you talk about how you can't act authentic, which makes a lot of sense, but I think what people have a hard time getting to is how do they find that authenticity in sales? How do they you know, emulate Snoop Dogg and master being you? It sounds so silly. It sounds simple. Like, of course, I can be myself better than anybody else. But the way our society is set up, one thing I've learned doing this show is that The first thing I'm usually helping people with when they're trying to find purpose or find happiness is actually figure out who they are. Because we get so used to what other people's versions of happiness and success is, what's being sold to us as happiness, that dopamine hit with every Amazon package that comes. Mm -hmm. And so we don't even know who we are. So how do we get to that authenticity in the role of sales, wherever that might be, whether you are selling nuggets to your toddler or or uh, time a, a to timeshare to, <laughs> to my parents. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. How do we get to that authenticity in the role of sales wherever that might be whether you are selling nuggets to your toddler or, or uh, time shares to, a your time parents. Share to, <laughs> to my parents
1: <laughs> yeah before you give the, yeah. the direct fire answer to that question i i do just want to give people permission to be okay with the fact that we have different authentic selves in fact chef roy choi when we interviewed him for the book he made that comment. He said that I, I've lived through multiple authentic selves, and you know who who you are authentically as the podcast host is probably slightly different than who you are authentically as the mom or as the employee or as the partner or whatever you know whatever the role is. Like there, it's okay to have different versions of yourself. I might be a little bit more outgoing with my family than I am in a room full of strangers, and that's authentic in both situations. So um, that's one thing that I think helps is, is in terms of a mindset shift and a reframe is that. An authentic self, whatever that means to you, and and some people get cringy with that because it's so it's it's a common overused kind of term, but it doesn't necessarily mean this one thing. You can you can be different people in different situations and still be authentic. So I just wanted to set that groundwork, Colin, before you directly answered the question. No, I I don't even have a
2: direct answer. I have something tangential to what you said.
1: But Great, that's, let's um, have fun.
2: <laughs> I think yeah, I think. I think it's a conversation around giving yourself permission. So I love what you said because that's like, that's my answer. If you're like, how do you teach someone how to be authentic? Well, you can't act authentic. So what do you do? Like, the first thing you have to do is give yourself permission to be like imperfect, which is actually really hard to do when like we're trained to like be the best version of fill in the blank whether it's the book you're reading about mom or like if it's the sales book or if it's the MBA or the, you know, the YouTube on like how to get hired. It's like you have to like be this person. So when people give themselves permission to not be the blank best version or the best version of blank, typically authenticity starts to look really awkward. You know, you'll start to see people talk to themselves out loud you know, you'll start you'll start to see people interrupt themselves. You'll start to hear the stutters. It's the best part of people. Like it, it's the most endearing part of people. Like when we were interviewing people in the book and they would just start talking to themselves out loud because they felt they like gave themselves permission to like let to, to not care that we were gonna see what they were saying to themselves. So no matter how good of a salesperson you were for those three seconds, we had this like unique micro moment of connection. Like we felt like we were inside in the book, we call it showing your work, like in math class and get credit for. It. So it's, you know, it starts with permission and then it just starts to look awkward. And the weird thing is that's when you know you're in front of a great salesperson, because I immediately will see myself in you. Like the minute I, I you know, like the, when I when I was late to meetings, when I was engaged to my wife, and I would show up to meetings, I was like, I'm, I'm my fiance. I would show up to now my wife. I would show up to meetings, and I would say, I'm sorry that I'm late. And my fiance takes wedding planning really seriously. Today it was a you know conversation between tulips and roses. And uh, never mind, doesn't matter. You don't care. I just want to say I'm sorry. You know, like whatever for whatever reason, I gave myself permission to share that with them, and immediately they saw themselves in me. Because their response was like, don't worry about it, Colin. It's going to be way easier on your second marriage. Like a quote. Like someone would tell me their marital history, right? And give me advice about like being a fiance. Like in the first 10 seconds Or someone would go, don't worry about it, Colin. I've been married for 30 years. You know, you have a happy wife. You have a happy life. Like how do I know that someone has been married for 30 years in the first five seconds? Because for whatever reason, when I said something, I showed that part of myself. I gave permission to just be like, hey, this is actually why I'm late. And they were like, oh shit, I get it. I've been late to stuff too because my partner thinks that something's really important and I'm gonna make sure that I'm not screwing that relationship up. So that's the answer is the permission, the awkwardness and the realization that the awkwardness is like the superpower. Everyone's imperfect, no one's perfect. We do not like perfect people. Science will tell you like the minute that you're too perfect, we have a gut reaction like, ugh, there's something wrong with this person. And that's because we don't like imperfection or we don't like perfection because we're not perfect. So there's a long circle around giving yourself permission, being imperfect, other people realizing that they're just like you because they know that you're imperfect and they catch
1: the vibe. And showing your work, which I think is and showing your work. You know, that's that was that's an important element of what Colin just said because. He showed his work when he went on the, those calls and and talked about the conversation he had just had with his fiance. and and we we talk to students all the time in office hours, you know, students from our class, they'll come into office hours and they'll always have something that they're stressed out about. And they're like, you know, I've got this big meeting that it took me months to secure with a, a big venture capitalist and I'm going to talk to him about my startup. And I'm really nervous that he's just gonna think that I'm a, a dumb college kid who doesn't know anything and who's just wasting his time. And our response—that's just one example. We hear hundreds of different examples. Our response every time is tell them that. Tell them right at the beginning. Say, "Hey, I was—I'm so excited to have this call, but I was nervous that you would think blah 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 blah." Like, wh- tell them that and let them in. Because what always ends up happening, just about every single time, is there's going to be that reciprocation that Colin talked about. Like, oh, you know, I—I I, w- I remember feeling that same way when I was in school, or whatever. Whatever the response is it's letting them into that part of you and that is a great way to to step into what you, going back to your original question being authentic in a conversation you can't help but be authentic if you're letting people into that thought process
2: how do people look for the good in you if they don't know who you are that's all this sales thing is right like looking for the good in someone is believing in someone if you want to look for, if you want someone to look for the good in you and the good in what you're saying to believe in you like you would have to do that like that's your responsibility first, right? To look for the good in the people that you're talking to that you, you would expect that from.
0: I'm reminded of uh, an interview I did a while back with Mel Robbins. And I had been trying to get her on my show for a little bit. And then she, her people actually ended up reaching out to me. And I was very excited about this. And of course, we happened to have a storm on that day. And long story short, the power went out mid-interview. And everything went dark. And I was just like fudge but with the worst word and and what I realized is that my computer my actual laptop battery didn't die my monitor did and so I thought she was off so she (laughs) hears my whole freak out and then I was mortified and I was like oh my gosh I'm so sorry I was just really looking forward to this and I didn't want to mess it up and of course this happens and she just ends up I love her she is Just as authentic as she seems on Instagram in real life. And she's like, oh, my God, let me tell you about this. And she tells me about a story that happened to her in the beginning of her career. And she's like, it's not a big deal. Even if we had to reschedule, we could. And I was in a completely different energy the rest of that time. And another interview that I had, I remember this woman saying, saying something. And then she's like, she stopped and she paused. And then she just said, you know, I actually don't think I believe that it doesn't sit well with me. And it was this process that actually changed my life. Now it's something that I do as well where, because a lot of times we will say something or do something and the way our brains work is then we try to justify what we did because nobody wants to think that we're crazy. Like you don't want to look at yourself as doing something irrational when we're humans and we do irrational crap all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so... Just in that, it like gave her permission to reflect back in real time and share something else. And so now I'll I'll say things and I'm like, yeah, I didn't like the way that felt. And I'll just kind of change it. But that authenticity doesn't just change the way you're perceived. It can actually change other people's lives and give them permission to step more fully into themselves as well.
1: Yeah, it's so glad you gave those examples. I mean, you're you're giving real life examples of showing your work, but that the reason those are so good is because they're so relatable. Like you're telling that story. And everybody listening is probably thinking of that time on zoom when they screwed up and did, you know, something, something has happened to everybody that's similar to that. And that's really what it's all about is that that human connection. And so giving yourself permission to Show those flaws uh, yesterday I was having a conversation with a really successful what are they they're called creators now they used to be influencers now they're creator, like really, really successful creator, and she was saying that you know she was she was trying to grow a following for a couple of years, and nothing was really happening. But the moment that she let them in on a medical issue that she was having, she let her small following in on a medical issue that she was having. All of a sudden, it started to grow and grow and grow. And then she realized that the all of the most popular posts that she was doing, they were all the things about what she viewed as her flaws or her insecurities or the things that she thought she was supposed to hide. Again, thinking outside of that box and being unsold on what you're supposed to do. And as soon as she started doing that, those were the ones that built her this crazy following. And now she's, she, you know, she's got this whole business out of it. And, and it all stemmed from not being afraid to show the imperfect parts of herself.
2: Mm -hmm. Saying, I don't know is the same thing. Just another example of that. You know, people expect you to have the answers who people expect you to be and who people hope you are. Aren't always the same person, you know, like we interviewed a great advertising, uh, a technology executive. Like she was like at the top of her game And she says that the inflection point like that changed her entire career was when she stopped acting like she knew the answers because she didn't, she just knew the words, right? She didn't really understand what the tech side of the house was. And she wasn't energized by it. Like she didn't actually like technology. She loved people, she loved relationships. She didn't like the tech, she wasn't interested in it. So one day she just said, I don't know, but I will go and find out for you. And she remembers it vividly that she started getting credit for being resourceful and going out and finding answers and fighting for her customers and treating them like each of them were unique and so there was no catch-all answer and she was getting more credit for finding answers than she was for having that so you know and look by the way i'm going to say something that garrett always says but i'll beat him to it you can weaponize any of this stuff and that's really hard you know like garrett said it earlier you know like everyone that hears this will hear the same words but 20 percent of the people will ingest it differently than the 80%. You know, 20% of people are going to hear it and turn into learners and get curious and figure out like how and what and where and like how it impacts them. And then like 80% are going to be like, oh, I know this now. I can just go and like, I'll start talking to myself out loud in front of people. (laughs) (laughs) And it won't work, you know? And that's because this is the mindset conversation. It's a conversation between learners and and knowers. And don't try to weaponize this because we will smell it. It might work once, but it it won't work at scale.
0: Well, because it's it's the intention behind it. Am I doing this because these are different ways to get in touch with myself and and find my own authenticity and find what I actually believe, or am I doing this to make the person buy something from me so I can profit or whatever it is? I'm reminded by there have been more instances that I than I'd like to see that have caused me to be distrustful of the medical industry. And I had to go to the doctor for some reason and was already like tuning out. Like I just don't <laughs> – I know that I, I need to like work on this maybe. I don't know. But I just tune them out and I'm like, you don't believe what I believe. I'm going to go home and find my own holistic remedy. This is just how it's going to be. I'm going to give birth at home. Leave me alone. And But this one doctor actually said – she's like, you know, I – I'm not really sure. And then she actually gets on her computer and she starts to look things up. And I start to see the resources that she's looking things up. And she's like, well, this says this, but I also know that this has happened. And like, it showed that she had a little bit of, I wouldn't, say distrust of the medical industry, I I guess she knows it's biases. And so she showed me that she was aware of that. And suddenly, I had never trusted a doctor more in my entire life. Mm. I went back to her multiple times, (laughs) because I'm like, we're on the same team with this versus, I don't know, like, my first instinct is usually like, all right, who's paying you to sell this? (laughs) Mm. You know,
2: that's the truth. Everybody wants to be a coach, you know, (laughs) everybody wants to be a coach. Sometimes you just need a teammate.
0: Yes. Yes. But one of the things you talk about uh, and kind of in the realm of not knowing it all is intentional ignorance. How is that helpful and and what is it?
1: Well, it helps you not fake it because think about this. There are things that you – in your day-to-day life, let's just say your job, for example, that you are not excited about. Or maybe that you're not good at or that you don't really understand that well. And and take your your doctor as a perfect example, right? Like she may, she could have pretended that she had those answers or she could have gone out and, and memorized whatever the book says she's supposed to know about whatever that particular issue was. But instead these great sellers, and I'm going to include your doctor in that just based on the one anecdote, but, um, you know, they, they intentionally Don't learn everything that there is to know about things because they know that if they have to show up and pretend to either be smart about it or be passionate about it, they're going to show up differently. They're not going to sound the same as if they're when they're talking about the things that they're excited about and the things that light them up. They come across different. We've all been in a conversation with somebody who's really passionate about the topic that they're talking about. And it's engaging and we lean in and we're excited to learn more from them. And we also know what it feels like to be in a conversation with somebody who clearly is kind of just pretending or reciting notes off of a list or something that they memorized. And that sounds different. So these great sellers Rather than come across as the person I just described, pretending to know something about something or pretending to be excited about something, they intentionally and intelligently ignore those things and instead bring in resources from other places so that, you know, maybe they have a customer that can help or somebody that works with them who can come in and who knows more about the topic. Um, We would see this all the time, Colin, with, uh, with the interviews that we were doing.
2: Yeah, it's, it's like Dharma. Not to get all, not to switch the conversation, but if if you can own what you love doing, and you can build the infrastructure to have a bunch of people around you that are doing what they love doing, and you don't have to take ownership of somebody else's swim lane, if, especially if you don't like it. Now that's like the ideal situation, but at its core, it's just that what we love doing and what we get paid to do are not always the same thing. That's right. And so, how do you how do you know which parts of your job you love so much that you would do for free, it would start with figuring out the parts of your job that you really are getting paid to do. And then you figure out what parts of that. And out of those parts, like which ones do you, can you give to someone else? Like I was just talking to someone who, because there's this Ray Lewis quote in our book, uh, the football player, is that you, you, they pay me for what I do Monday through Saturday. Sundays are my pleasure. Right. And so I'm asking this person, I'm like, wait, what would you do for free? And she starts talking about PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) And like my face lights up. And she's like, I've never seen anybody get so excited about hearing me talk about PowerPoint. It's like, well, it's just for me, it really excites me because you have to pay me a lot of money to do PowerPoint presentations. I can't stand (laughs) making PowerPoint presentations, but you love it. Like how amazing would it be if we worked together? Because you know what she doesn't like? Like, she gets energy drained from having back-to-back meetings. I get energy from back-to-back meetings. We're a perfect duo. So, you know, it's it's intentional ignorance at its best. And I think Garrett said it best, which is it's uh, intelligent and intentional, but still ignorance. Because ignorance without intention is just ignorance. Is that the first time that, we, that I've said that?
1: No, you've tried that one before. And it was just as awkward this time, but... <laughs> It's less awkward because they're not keep... watching the video. Yeah, we're going to workshop that a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> we'll
2: Showing and... your work in real time. I love this. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? The team behind element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition so they really know what they're doing and it's not just for everyday use either elite athletes and teams risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm reminded of my old roommate who loved doing spreadsheets. And I actually just had a spreadsheet conversation the other day. And I'm like, spreadsheets make me feel like death. I want to never <laughs> open a spreadsheet in my entire life. My husband's like, Will you just open the spreadsheet? Cause we're we have a spreadsheet for what we pay our nanny. And he's like, just add this week's stuff. And I look at it and like, you want me to copy and paste lines from Google Sheets on my phone in the car in the passenger seat with a baby crying in the back? Do you want to make this the worst day I've ever had? And he just like, <laughs> looked at me like, why are you so dramatic? But it, it's, it reminds me of um, the beginning of my entrepreneurship journey. My husband and I were both kind of building businesses at the same time. And one thing we both got in our heads about was having to know everything. And, you know, when you're, you have to be your own accountant and, and CEO and, and assistant, like you have to, you feel like you have to know all the areas versus mm-hmm. a CEO that I worked for at one point. It's actually almost laughable because he didn't know how to do anything in any of the businesses that, I worked for him, two different ones, (laughs) and he didn't know the technical skills, the sales skills, the financial skills whatsoever, but he was great at a big vision, and he was great at hiring people. Those were the two things that he was good at, and he focused on them well, and so even in meetings, we'd be talking, and he'd be like, I don't know about that, but I did hire somebody great who does, and people were so Mm. impressed by that because we all know that humans have a tendency to make stuff up to when they're trying to prove a point, to sell something, whatever. And so when you see somebody step back and say, I don't know that, and whether you see their process of finding the information, so suddenly you trust their ability to find information more, as in the case of my doctor, or you trust in their ability to bring in an expert to fill in the gaps of knowledge that they don't have, both ways are showing your work where it makes you more trustworthy and you don't really have to know anything at all
1: when we were writing the book, we interviewed General Stanley McChrystal. And he for I don't know how long ran the joint forces in Afghanistan, which basically means that he was responsible for 48 countries, 10s of 1000s of troops over there. And you know, when he's selling something, he's selling life and death, like if, if people aren't buying into the missions that he's selling, they might not come home. It's a, It's a big deal. And he told us, that people expect a general to come into the room and to have all the answers to say, you go here and you do that, and your group does that and our group does that. And he said he never did that intentionally. He said he 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 knew where to find everything in his organization. And that was more important to him than being the source of everything in his organization. So, you know, he could focus like your boss in that in that story on the bigger strategy, knowing that if there was a technical element to a mission, that there were people whose livelihoods and whose jobs it was to handle those things to know every detail about that technology and he would go to them and to go back to Colin's point he would let them empower them to live their dharma while he lived his and and that was really effective for him you know in in his career so i you know it, it's just a, another example of giving yourself permission to do things a little bit differently
0: it, it's even Really helpful when you're selling yourself on something, which I think has to happen whenever you're making a big life change, which is what a lot of people want to do because they find out they realize late in life that they're maybe in a job that they don't love or a situation that they don't love. So they've got to sell themselves on this big change. And so often we talk ourselves out of the change before because it's like, well, I couldn't be an entrepreneur because I suck at this part. And it's like when I started my entrepreneur journey, one of the big turning points for me was realizing. Okay, which parts do I love? Which parts do I tolerate? And which parts do I hate? Can I outsource those parts that I hate immediately? Or like, what is my exit plan of those parts? That way, it doesn't seem like forever. It doesn't seem like this death sentence where I'm getting myself into something I don't want to do. It's like, okay, I can do this for three months. Hopefully by then I'll have this income. I can hire somebody on Upwork, whatever it is. So it's shifting the perspective for yourself on what it actually takes for you to do your job, to change your life. And I think so much around this is around shifts in perspective. Another huge shift in perspective that you guys talk about is reframing the idea of failure. And this is helpful way beyond sales. So can you talk about that for a minute?
2: Well, it's the um, really cheesy analogy, but I'm going to use it because Garrett hates it. So that always amuses me. Oh, where are we going? <laughs> About the baseball player batting average. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, like a great baseball player. Like if you have a batting average of like 300, you're a Hall of Famer. That also means that you missed seven out of 10 times. And so it doesn't matter and if you're in any position that's that you're solving real po- problems that are important right? Like when you're doing important work, like you're going to have to make mistakes because that's your job. Like getting this, like making the same mistake twice, that means you're not doing your job, but making a mistake is like actually doing your job. And so without getting into too much detail, like we've just found that these great salespeople are really good at celebrating the process because they've had that mindset shift where the obstacle is the way, you know, To, to quote Ryan Holiday, like they... They see it as a great objection they've never heard before, right? That's excellent. Like they see the mistake as like a great example of something that was a blind spot that they never saw again. And when you sell, when you look for reasons to celebrate, often enough, you know the the byproduct of the celebration is is a sale, but not necessarily the basis for the celebration. It's just it's a self-aware. It's it's all about self awareness. Like this is about. Someone that understands that the sales cycle and anything that's really meaningful isn't that short and transactional. Because of that, there is this very big prolonged gratification. You know, sort of uh, continuum that you're going to have to ride. And so, while most of us really want instant gratification, you're not going to get it. Like, say, if success is predicated on just getting a yes, and you work in a job where your average sales cycle is three months or nine months, then you're only going to celebrate like once every three months. You will burn out, and horrible things will happen. And there's a bunch of horrible data around salespeople in any capacity, like burning out and having all of these. Outcomes that are related to that. So I guess I'm just saying that it's it celebrating the process is looking at the sales process uh, as prolonged gratification and not necessarily instant gratification and being able to celebrate along the way.
1: Yeah, it's not easy to do when you're in the mess. You know, if you, if you if you're just in a tough time, you're having a tough stretch. It's not easy to sit there and listen to us say, "Hey, well, celebrate the failure," because there's a lesson there, and because it's getting you a step closer to you're not going to get the same rejection again, or you're you're not going to make the same mistake that you just made. But over time, if you practice this, and there's a there's a psychological principle called reappraisal that's really interesting, and and it talks about re, it's literally reframing the um, the way that you view a failure or a bad situation. Um, and it's not something that happens overnight, where you just make the decision and you go, "Okay, I'm going to now reappraise my bad situations, or I'm going to celebrate my failures just as much as I celebrate my wins." And everything's great now. It takes time, but it is like a muscle you can you can flex that and work it out. And over time, you become much more able to do it in the moment. And there's actually this, we write about some of the science behind this that's in our book, but um, there there's there's science that backs up the fact that over time, the distance between the t- the, the incident happening. And the actual reappraisal happening in your head shrinks the more you do it. Yeah,
2: I live and go as far as to say that one of the best reappraisals that we ever stumbled upon was the best part of the movie. At some point, we just started saying it all the time because you never know that you're in the best part of the movie. And so you're looking backwards. Like that's when you realize it. Like we don't go to the movies to see you win. Right? We don't go to see the last five minutes. We go to see the middle, which is an emotional roller coaster. But that's the most interesting part, you know. Like there's great quotes around like all moments are key moments when you look back, like they're all important. But you don't actually realize that. So sometimes when you're in the thick of it and you realize, "Damn, this is probably the best part of the movie," like that is an example of a reappraisal that has certainly worked for us and a lot of our students.
0: I love that the the best part of the movie. I. I'm reminded of an interview I did way back in episode 111 with Mickey Agrawal, and she talks about reframing failure as a revelation. And so I can see using that in the sales process because, for example, if you are trying to beat the world record in the 400-meter race or something like that, before you beat that record, technically, every time you try – You've failed to beat that record, but that's not how they look at it. They're measuring, well, I just shaved off 0.01 seconds. Oh, I shaved off this, but still, you're still not beating that record yet. And so it's finding a new way to quantify and measure. And so with the failures in our life, whether it's in typical sales or, or whatever you're trying to persuade or move forward or whatever, if you are just able to look back and find a lesson of, okay, yeah, where did that go wrong? Or, oh, I felt the disconnect in our energy right here. What can I do better next time? Then you're finding a way to take a step forward every single time, reflect and get better and, and shave off whatever you're trying to shave off to get to that goal.
2: Mm-hmm, because the opposite of that is looking at goals as finish lines. Yes. but they're not right. Goals are mile markers. Like once you achieve a goal, then what does the world stop? Like once you hit that, that 400 goal, then what? Okay. Like, if I let Garrett talk, he'll be talking about hedonic treadmill and the science behind like this <laughs> ephemerality <laughs> behind goal achievement. But it's the truth. Like we were, like, we were interviewing some of the greatest leaders on the planet and we were asking them about their goal orientation because we were goal forward people because that's where you have to be in the enterprise. And they were all figuring out a way to like answer the question using words like purpose. To the point where it was a really clear, just, it, it made sense to us. They view a purpose as a finish line. They view goals as mile markers. They attach their goals to their purpose. When they hit them, it doesn't mean that, that they've made it. It just means that they're that much closer to something that they'll never catch because these are ING words in your purpose. You're serving, you're teaching, right? You're inspiring, you're empowering. These are different than like goals, which are just a lot more selfish. So it's yeah. two sides of the same coin.
1: I don't think I I don't think we've ever articulated it this way before, Colin. But as as I'm listening to you, Melissa, talk about those examples, and I'm listening to Colin, and we're talking about the best part of the movie, maybe the reframe is really just shifting the time frame that you're thinking about. Because if you're thinking about a goal, it's a limited time frame. But if you're thinking about your purpose, it's a much bigger time frame. And so the failure here doesn't feel like as much of a failure there. And I'm thinking about There was a a video that was going around the internet about a month ago. Uh, One of the best players in the NBA, his team was eliminated from the playoffs. And a reporter asked him, you know, do you view this season as a a failure? And you can Google it. And he went on this beautiful kind of two-minute rant about the fact that, no, he doesn't view it as a failure because in order to win, you have to go through the setbacks and everything that they learned this year is going to apply next year. And he, he just had this beautiful answer to it. And he he took a lot of heat on the internet from people who are like, how can you say that? Your job is to win a championship, and you shouldn't you shouldn't be saying anything. But yes, this is a failure. But he was changing his time frame. He wasn't thinking about just the season. He was thinking about his career and his longer term goals of winning multiple championships. And realizing that yes, while he didn't hit it this time, that in that time frame there's there's a there, there's still the opportunity to win because he's still in the best part of the movie.
0: Well, I feel like we really took that race analogy full circle. (laughs) We did laps around it, I should say. (laughs) But we've touched on so many important things about that I think are are so critical for people that are, are finding that purpose. And there's so many people in this audience that... Their goal is to change the world. And so there's also so much in the book we did not even have time to touch on. So for listeners that are interested in connecting with you guys and finding your book, which, again, we only probably touched on the first 20% of it, and it is all full of gold, where's the best place for them to connect?
1: We're pretty easy to find. You can find us on all of the social medias. We are at Colin and Garrett on Twitter and Instagram. We are ourselves on LinkedIn. We've got a website, colinandgarrett.com, where Colin will get mad at me if I don't point out that you can also sign up for our emails. Um, We've been doing some really cool things with some of the impactful questions that we touched on very briefly earlier in this conversation there. Um, but we would love to hear from people. If you've got questions, if there's anything that we could have gone deeper on in in the limited time we had here, reach out. We'd love to chat.
0: All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 308. Your challenge for this week is to figure out one area that you sell If you're a salesperson, this will be easy. For you, pick the top most important thing that you sell. If you're anybody else, look at your life and determine where is it that I try to persuade people? Is it in my job? Is it something that I believe? Is it something I'm always sharing? Now look at your current approach. Has it been successful? If so, why? Are you already naturally implementing some of these strategies? And if not, is there another way to look at your product or service or idea or mindset? Even if you're selling ballpoint pens, is there a transformation that you're selling? Is it an opportunity to be a writer or to share information more fluidly without having to replace your ink? (laughs) This is your area of expertise, so you know where to get the gold points, the benefits to the lives of the people that are taking it. And you're not going to go out there and just start pushing these already. I want you to really sit with this transformation. Really believe in your heart and your mind that you are providing a transformation. And see if that changes the way that you approach your sales or your persuasion techniques or your sharing of ideas. And let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, or if you know someone that it could help, please consider sharing by tapping the share button or taking a screenshot and sharing it on Instagram, tagging mind love Melissa and mind love podcast. I get a lot of emails and messages from you guys. And one of my top requests is that you want a way to keep yourself accountable to actually applying some of the information that we're using or learning in these episodes. And so I created something for you for just that. It's the mind love membership, mindlovecom slash membership. You can find out more information Every month you get a masterclass that's designed to help you live your life more intentionally, to start creating your life from the inside out, getting really clear on what brings you joy and what your ultimate goals and purposes are, and then applying it step by step, month by month. And here's the kicker. Each monthly masterclass is actually worth more than an entire year subscription to the MindLove membership. So find out more at mindlove.com membership. You can also find all my sponsors at mindlove.com sponsors, And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until
2: next week.